Our text today is in John 10, 1 through 13. I'm going to take a little break from the book of Exodus. We've been teaching on Exodus 20 and 21 for a while. I'm going to take a little break this month. Thank you, honey. And teach a little bit about a subject or a topic for this sermon and for the next three Sabbaths as well. John 10, 1 through 13, we read, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Yeshua gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Yeshua said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away. When he sees a wolf coming, the wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. I was raised from birth as a Christian, which means a follower of Christ, and I thank my Creator every day for allowing me to be born into this faith. I heard early on in my childhood that you are a sinner. Christ died for your sins. Accept the forgiveness that comes through Him today and receive eternal life. I heard that a lot growing up. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul writes this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. The Bible is very plain, but the question that I want to begin to ask today is, how does that work? You know, I believe it, whether I understand it or not, I believe it. You know, you can get on an airplane, and you don't have to have a clue as to how it works. You can get on a big hunk of metal and take off in Georgia and fly all the way to Washington State for about four hours. And you don't have to know how it all operates and works for it to operate. Somebody knows, though, the pilot. And if you want to sit down with him and ask questions, he'll tell you the mechanics, whether or not you understand it, he'll tell you the mechanics of how the plane works. It happens. There's a reason behind it. It's the same way with Yeshua's death being for the forgiveness of sins. I believe that someone can be a lost sinner with a penitent heart who asks for forgiveness and repents of their sin, and they'll be forgiven based upon the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Messiah to the right hand of the Father. Understanding exactly how it works is not a condition to receive the forgiveness offered, but you will have a greater appreciation for the Messiah as you grow 
as a follower of the Messiah, as you grow to a greater level of knowledge and understanding of how exactly reconciliation between us and Almighty Yahweh works because of what the Messiah has done for us. So our faith should not be one of mere bumper sticker phrases. A lot of people, a lot of Christians say big words and they have not a clue as to what they mean. I'm afraid too often cliche Christianity is what exists among Christians. We learn a set of words or phrases to quickly describe what we believe, but we don't spend the time learning what those words or phrases really mean. So I'd like to begin teaching you today about the atonement, the various atonement theories that are out there, what I have formerly believed about the atonement in my past, and what I now believe about the atonement currently. I can always grow in understanding. It doesn't make me 100% right. This is going to be a very educational series. But my hope is that you understand the how better and you greater appreciate the sacrifice of the Messiah. I also hope that through these lessons you will be able to explain it to other people intelligently but yet in a simple way to believers and to unbelievers most importantly. So, I want to set the stage here a little bit. We have Almighty Yahweh. He's the Creator. He's holy. Holy means set apart, sacred, sanctified. He's set apart from sin. He's set apart from wickedness. And Yahweh gives instructions for us to follow. Commandments, laws, teaching, guidance. He created this beautiful paradise over in the area of the earth known as southern Mesopotamia. We now call it modern-day Iraq. And this paradise he called the Garden of Eden. Everything that Yahweh made was good all through Genesis. And he saw that it was good. Eden, the Garden of Eden. Eden actually means pleasure, luxury, or delight. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis 3.22, it calls it the orchard of pleasure or the orchard of delight. Garden of Eden is, is fine as well. That's more common of how we have heard it. At this time, Yahweh gave instructions to our first parents, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. And He gave them one instruction, at least, that is recorded there in Genesis 2 and 3. And what did they do? They disobeyed the instruction because of this creature that's called the serpent or the snake in Genesis chapter 3. And their disobedience caused all of creation to enter a state of fallenness. Not just Adam, not just Eve, but also the animals. Even the dust of the ground. Uh, they had to toil in order to plant a garden after that. Now we might think that that's not fair. But if we think that, we were all given the same opportunity and the same chance to be obedient. And every single one of us chose to be disobedient. We look at little baby. I was holding my fourth grandchild, Amelia, and she hasn't done anything good. She hasn't done anything bad. But she, just like the rest of us, is going to grow up one day and mom and dad's going to say, don't do something, and she's going to do it. Or do do something and not want to do it. That goes for all of us. We've all done what Adam and Eve did. But Adam was special. He was different than you and I. Adam was created perfect. He was made upright. Yahweh created and formed him from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. 
Eve was then formed from the side of Adam. The deep sleep went on Adam. Yahweh took the side or a rib, possibly DNA, out of Eve, um, out of Adam, and then he formed Eve from Adam. So we're talking about a unique son of Yahweh, Adam, and a unique daughter of Yahweh. Neither one of them had a mom or a dad earthly. They weren't procreated like we are or like Abel and Cain or Seth were from Adam and Eve. Like we are, they were directly created by Almighty Yahweh. So if there were ever two good people to give it a shot, better than Matthew, better than Rocket, better than Sandy, Adam and Eve were those people. You and I certainly would not have done any better. So let's not think, well, it's not fair. We didn't get the opportunity. No, that was the best opportunity that we could have been given with a perfect man and a perfect woman. The chance to live in the garden forever, eat of the tree of life, and continuously be able to dwell. But that was taken away from them because they disobeyed. After this, all people are born in every generation and we all sin personally. Um, I do believe that we are condemned because of our own sin, but there's some type of corruption, there's some type of wrong that is inherited after the sin of our first parents. Adam is like the federal head over all of humanity. It's kind of like when, when David, one little man, beat Goliath, one big man. When David won the battle, all of Israel won the battle, right? When Goliath lost the battle, all the Philistines lost the battle. So when Adam and Eve were winning, we were all winning in Adam. When Adam lost, we all lose in Adam. But I do believe that we're condemned based on our own transgression after that. Ecclesiastes 7, 20 and 29 says, There is certainly no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Verse 29, Only see this, I have discovered that the Almighty made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Almighty. Sin is the breaking of Yahweh's law. 1 John 3 and 4, Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. And sin is the breaking of the law. So any instruction that Yahweh gives us to follow when it's not followed, when we decide to do what we want rather than what He wants us to do, we sin or we disobey that instruction. So how do we now, as sinners and thus unholy, restore our relationship with the Almighty, with the Creator? True enough, there must be penitence. Penitence means humility and remorse or sorrow for sin. Think about when you were little and you did something mean towards your cousin or your sibling and your parent said, say, I'm sorry. How many ever said, I'm sorry, but didn't mean I'm sorry? <laughs> all of us, right? Bunch of sinners. Bunch of sinners in here. <laughs> we all said, I'm sorry, and didn't mean it. But sometimes we said it and we meant it, right? Because what? We were humble and we were penitent, even as a little kid. And then we picked right back up and started back playing with a cousin or with our brother or our sister. So we regretted what we did at times. And even as an adult, we sin. Sometimes we sin and we try to put it out of our minds, which is not good. Other times we sin, we immediately feel remorse. We're sorrowful. We go to the Father in prayer. Sometimes we have to go to the person we wronged and ask for forgiveness. And if you're genuinely sorry and you're remorseful, that's penitence. Only penitent people will make it to the kingdom of heaven. Only penitent people. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Pharisee prayed thus to himself, I thank God I'm not like this tax collector that's praying beside me. 
I do all these things. The tax collector wouldn't what? Lift his eyes up to heaven, but he bowed his head, smote his chest, and said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Yeshua says, I tell you, this man went home justified. For whoever exalts himself shall be brought low. But whoever humbles himself, puts himself low, shall be exalted. Justified basically is a fancy word that means forgiven of your sin. Forgiven of your sin. But is that all that it takes? Penitence. We know that that is an ingredient for forgiveness. That's an ingredient for reconciliation with us and the Almighty. But is that all that it takes? Well, if we only want to read or focus on certain texts in the Bible, then it might sound like it's enough. I could take you to probably five to ten really potent scriptures about penitence. And that's all I could show you. And you would think, well, as long as I'm penitent, I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled to the Almighty. But if we look at everything that the Bible has to say, we find that there's more for the restoration between mankind and the Heavenly Father to take place. I'm reminded of some in the anti-Messiah movement, anti-missionary movement, people who have denied the Messiah or who actively preach to try to get people to deny Yeshua or denounce Yeshua. People who think that they can just obey the law and be saved. We don't believe that here. But they quote a text like Ezekiel 18, 21-22. And they'll say this, But if the wicked turns from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does that which is lawful and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of his transgressions that he has committed will be remembered against him. In his righteousness that he has done, he will live. And they say, see, all you've got to do is turn from your sin and start doing righteousness and you'll live. That's what you do have to do. Ezekiel 18 is true. But what about Isaiah 52.13 through Isaiah 53.12? Brother TJ just taught seven or eight sermons verse by verse, exegetically through that. Beautiful series, excellent series of lessons on the suffering servant of Yahweh. And he showed how that that was a prophecy of the man from Nazareth. Yeshua. So, do we just believe Isaiah 52 and 53? No. Do we just believe Ezekiel 18? No. Do we just believe the verses on penitence? No. We believe all of that. And that is the way that we're reconciled with the Almighty. Let me give you a little illustration about only believing part of what the Bible says. You know, the Bible does say, Ask and you shall receive. That is in the Bible. I heard a guy yesterday, very popular guy, not a preacher. Sometimes he sounds like he preaches. Very popular. He quoted three verses. Every single one was quoted out of context. The crowd was listening, clapping. It sounded good, but you can't quote verses out of context and think that you're handling the Word of Yahweh properly. Well, asking you shall receive is a Bible verse, but we don't want to quote it out of context, and we don't want to teach on prayer and think that that's all that you have to do for your prayer to be answered. Ask and you shall receive. And I get you all riled up and say, Brother Matthew said, ask and you shall receive. So I'm going to ask tonight for whatever I want. And bless God, I'm going to receive it. Well, what about humility? The Bible also says in James 4, do not ask amiss to consume upon your own desire. So there's another piece to the puzzle, another ingredient to the cake. 
So you have to ask in humility, not consuming upon your own desire. All the pieces of Scripture on a subject come together to form a beautiful puzzle. If you focus on one piece of the puzzle, you never make a complete perfect picture. Imagine opening up a puzzle and you've got a thousand corner pieces and they all look the same. You think, how in the world am I going to put this puzzle together? All the pieces look the same. You can't just focus on one Scripture. You have to take the sum of the Word of Yahweh. Psalm 119, verse 160. So this is where Yeshua, the second Adam, He's called the second Adam, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. According to several texts of Scripture, including our opening text in John 10, we'll look at that in a moment, Yeshua of Nazareth is the suffering servant sent by Yahweh. He's the second Adam. He's uniquely begotten by Yahweh. Remember how the first Adam was uniquely created? Dust of the earth, breath of life, living soul. The second Adam, Romans 5, was uniquely created through the womb of a virgin. Luke 1, Matthew 1. The virgin's name was, was Mary or, or Miriam. She had never known a man. It was a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. It was a second Adam, a new creation. Uniquely begotten by Yahweh. The perfect anointed one. And he grew up and he never transgressed the law of Yahweh. There's like four or five scriptures that teach that he did no sin or he knew no sin or he was tempted in all points as we are except without transgression, except without sin. The second Adam reversed what the first Adam did. So what the first Adam lost, the second Adam got back. I used to say that to my granddaddy and he'd get excited. (laughs) He'd get excited. He said, I love that grandson. I like how you put that. Hallelujah. So when we place our faith in the second Adam... We come out of what the first Adam put us under and we come into what the second Adam gives to us by faith and also also by a loving, faithful relationship with Him. It's not just a mind thing, brothers and sisters. Salvation is, is definitely, it, it definitely starts in the mind and in the heart, but it works itself out in our deeds and in our actions. So I'm not saying we have to be perfect. None of us are. But we've got to walk in the light as He is in the light. Then the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, right? So we've got to have a loving, faith-based relationship with our Messiah and with the Almighty. And therefore, because we're joined or attached to the second Adam, we inherit what He inherits. Now we might wonder, well, what about all those people that lived before Yeshua of Nazareth was born? Before He lived, died, and was resurrected. Well, the Older Testament saints were told by Yahweh through the Holy Prophets about a special deliverer, about the one that was to come. And they believed what they were told. Abraham believed. There's a text in an apocryphal writing that says that one time Yahweh visited Abraham in his dreams and he told him about this deliverer. And of course we know that Abraham rejoiced to see the Messiah's day, John 8, and he saw it and was glad. So they believed to the extent that Yahweh told them through the holy prophets. Those who personally knew him, who walked with him as a disciple, wouldn't that have been amazing to be a direct disciple of the Messiah? It would have been amazing. 
Well, those who personally knew him, they believed on him as a present thing. Now, look, we're kind of like the Older Testament saints. They looked forward to his coming. Now we read about him, we hear about him, and we look back. We don't know him personally. We don't touch him. We, we have faith in him looking back. So whether you're looking forward, present, or looking back, everybody receives the inheritance of eternal life based upon being attached to the Messiah. See? So by placing your faith and trusting in the Deliverer that was sent by Yahweh and having this obedient love-faith relationship with Him, we're forgiven of our sins. We inherit what He inherits. Paul says we're heirs of God, that's the Father, and we're joint heirs with Christ, that's the Son. So see, we inherit the inheritance from the Father, but we're a joint inheritor or a joint heir with Christ. So whatever He gets, we get he shows up at the table and gets the best meal. We get the best meal, right? He gets the best robe. We get the best robe. He gets immortality and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. We get immortality and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. That's the biggest part. Because the death of Christ culminated in the resurrection to immortality. Just as Yeshua was raised from the dead, we too, at the coming of Yeshua, will be raised bodily from the dead have a new body, immortal body, unable to get sick, unable to get old, and will live in eternity forever. We shall plant fields, work them with our hands. We won't have to toil, we won't have to sweat. But every man, uh, Micah chapter 4 says, will sit under his grapevine and his fig tree and will walk in obedience to the Creator because we believed in the Deliverer that He sent. That is a short overview but again, how does, how does it work? What's the mechanics of it? How does the death of the Messiah reconcile us to the Father? How does the resurrection of the Messiah reconcile us to the Father? Let's look at John 10 from the mouth of Yeshua to see what He says about His mission. John 10, 1-5. He gives us an illustration that helps us understand who He is and how He works. Listen to this. He says, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice and they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Sometimes preachers like myself get a bad rap for using illustrations in their sermon. I've had some people tell me, Brother Matthew, you use a lot of illustrations in that sermon. Why don't you just teach the Bible? That sounds pretty hardcore, but when you look at the greatest teacher that ever lived, Yeshua, you know how he taught? He taught by illustrations. He said there was a man that had some seed and he went out and he sowed the field. Or there's some sheep that go through the door to get to the pen. And the shepherd opens the door. And He leads them and they follow the voice of the shepherd. These are illustrations. These are word pictures. These are things to get your mind to think. Here the shepherd enters the sheep pen by the door. He goes in through the door because he owns the pen. Thieves and robbers, what do they normally not do? They don't go through the door. They go through a window. They break in another way. They bust down the door. They don't open it up. The sheep... They then listen to the voice of their shepherd when the shepherd enters in through the door. 
They grow accustomed to the shepherd. They listen to the voice of the shepherd. They recognize the sound of the voice of the shepherd. They will not follow a stranger. Sheep won't. They won't follow a stranger when they know the voice of the farmer or the voice of the shepherd. In John 10, 6, the people that Yeshua told this to, they didn't understand what he was telling them, the text says. But he goes on and he explains and he applies the illustration. John 10, 7 through 10, he says this, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. So Yeshua likens Himself first to the door of the sheep pen or the barn that the sheep walk in and out of. They walk in probably during the night for warmth and protection. And they walk out of the door during the day to go and find pasture for grazing. And of course the sheep are the people who love and follow Yeshua. That's the sheep. John 10 verse 11, he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. So now he's telling them another part of the illustration. He not only can be viewed as the door of the sheep pen that you go in and out of, he can also be viewed as the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep. He calls the sheep and they listen to his voice and they do what he says. And then if they get their head stuck in the fence one day, he gets them out and they're still a sheep. They're still a sheep. In verse 11, at the end, it says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here in verse 11, we see the concept of sacrifice. 
somebody laying down their life so that somebody else is protected. The shepherd is ready and willing to protect the sheep. Laying down his life if need be. Predators may show up, but the shepherd is there to guard his flock, to guard his sheep. Look at verses 12 through 13. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. So you see the contrast between the shepherd who owns the sheep and the hired man, right? The shepherd's the owner. He's invested in the sheep. The hired man doesn't have any investment in the sheep. He's just there to work. He's not as worried. So when trouble comes, he may flee. You know, the same holds true like when you, you buy something expensive with your own money. You want to protect it, right? One time Morgan told me a funny thing. I think she sent me a funny video one time about being a young adult living with mom and dad versus being newly married and living with, uh, you know, your spouse. And she said, you know, you start appreciating things like heat. It said like when you were a kid living at home, you know, you go to the refrigerator, you turn up the orange juice, you turn down the air, turn up the heat, and then it showed the newly <laughs> wedded couple and was making sure that the heat was just barely on, you know, maybe like on 57 or 58 <laughs> instead of 74, right? <laughs> and the orange juice, you know, you measured it out. You begin to appreciate things and take better care of them when you buy them yourself, right? That's what Yeshua was talking about here. The hired man doesn't have anything invested in the sheep, so he runs when the wolf comes. The good shepherd, though, is willing and ready to lay his life down for the sheep. I want you to look at the wolf here. Once again, the wolf comes, the hired man runs. The good shepherd sees the wolf, he doesn't run. When he sees the wolf coming, he protects the sheep. Who do you suppose the wolf is? I think the wolf is that serpent in Genesis 3. We call him the devil or Satan or the adversary. It's a depiction of the devil that came to steal, kill, and destroy Adam and Eve. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy Matthew and all the rest of us. That's his mission. The good shepherd, though, is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And not only is he willing to, he actually does lay his life down for the sheep. John 10, 17 says... This is why the Father loves me. This is the Son talking. Because I am laying down my life so that I may take it up again. He's speaking here of His death and resurrection. And He illustrates it as a wolf coming and Him letting the wolf take Him instead of the sheep. That's the illustration that He's giving. There's a greater purpose involved so Yeshua dies at the hand of the devil in order to save us. The good shepherd dies at the hand of the wolf in order to save the sheep. That is the beginning of understanding just what Yeshua did for us. I'm going to talk a little bit next week about some of the atonement theories that people have believed throughout history. And I will tell you the one that I have finally landed on after the past two or three years of my research and study. It's a very old model, a very early Christian model. 
and I'll unpack that more next week. I'm going to explain some things that you may have never heard of. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I know there was a time that I hadn't heard of them, but I look forward to doing that. All right? Praise the Father. Let's pray, and then we'll do our testimony and prayer request. Heavenly Father, we love You and we thank You. You're good to us. You love us. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for sending us Your Son. Father, I ask that You would forgive us of our sins. Help us to live a holy life. Make us more like the Messiah. Let us appreciate all the work that He's done for us. It's through Him we pray. Amen. Amen.